This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Good afternoon. Welcome to Vancouver Consumer. In just a few moments, Doug Muir, Chief Enforcement Officer for the BC Securities Commission, will join us in studio to talk about fraud and how to protect yourself from scammers and carn artists. And we'll open up our phone lines, too. Next hour, John Carlson returns with a look at the latest numbers for Metro Vancouver real estate. But first, here are some of the top consumer stories we're following this week. Equifax Canada says consumer delinquencies climbed higher in the fourth quarter of last year, and the 90-day mortgage delinquency rate rose by a point and a half percent last year. The comparable non-mortgage rate was up only half a point. Equifax says total Canadian consumer debt, including mortgages, increased to nearly $1.91 trillion, with a T in the fourth quarter, up from $1.8 trillion in the fourth quarter of last year. They were talking trillions of dollars of Canadian debt, and we're only 35 million people. Astonishing. The average non-mortgage debt for consumers, 23500 bucks, up 3% compared with a year ago. Bankruptcies are up 15% in the last half of 2018, and the small increase in delinquency rates masks some underlying weakness, said the folks at Equifax. Rising delinquency is likely to become the norm in 2019. This is one of the main reasons the Bank of Canada declined to raise interest rates this week. More on that later. If you're looking for a low-cost smartwatch or fitness tracker, Fitbit will soon have a few new options to consider. Fitbit announced a handful of new products Wednesday, including a Versa Lite smartwatch that starts at $160 and offers much the same look and features found on last year's $200 model. Fitbit is going after first-time smartwatch buyers, many of whom are young and eager for a focused, affordable device. These are the people who are really interested in making health and fitness more connected but they may not have hundreds of dollars in disposable income, say the folks at Fitbit. And so the Versa Lite Edition is the company's lowest price smartwatch, smartwatch rather, to date. Like the original Versa a year ago, it'll track your heart rate, steps, and sleep patterns while also notifying you when you have a new email or text. Now, by comparison, the latest Apple Watch costs more than twice as much. The Samsung Galaxy Watch is significantly less expensive than that one, but still costs a hundred bucks more than the light. And coming this summer is the Fitbit Ace 2, a new version of the tracker the company rolled out just for kids a year ago. Premier John Horgan says he's checking the mood of our neighbors in the United States about possibly moving to a unified time zone. As we prepare to shift our clocks to daylight time overnight tonight, Premier Horgan wants to explore the possibility of California, Washington, Oregon, and B.C. being on the same time all year long. He says he's written to the governors of those three states asking for their opinions. It's much easier for us in B.C. if you want to pull this off. We can switch to a single time zone without any massive federal approval, whereas in the States, 
It requires an act of Congress to change your time zone. Here's part of Horgan's pitch to the West Coast governors. Quote, it is clear that a change in any of these jurisdictions in our time zone would have significant impacts on B.C. It makes sense that we move in unison on this matter. Uh, uh, Close quote. And of course, to many others, this whole time change thing doesn't make any sense at all. Regardless of your opinions, the clocks will move forward one hour tonight, overnight at 2 a.m. officially. So don't forget to change the clocks, those that won't change themselves, before you go to bed tonight. And Ben will have more on this later. News from BC Lotteries this week. There will be no casino or gaming parlor coming to the North Shore anytime soon. A couple of years ago, in 2016, the BC Lottery Corporation, which is the agency that is in charge of gambling in our province, were looking for expressions of interest from the North Shore's three local governments and two First Nations to host a community gaming facility. Well, one city and one First Nation said, sure. But the majority said, no. Blaming a lack of a good location is one reason. BC Lotteries actually agreed with that this week after two years of studying possibilities, saying there is nowhere for a community gaming facility interesting euphemism for a casino, don't you think? To go on the North Shore. Any host city, by the way, gets 10% of the casino action, so this means millions lost. For now, BC Lottery says there will be another look at this North Shore casino action in the years ahead. Those are a few of the week's top consumer stories. We'll check more as we go along, but coming right up, we'll meet Doug Muir, enforcement officer from the BC Securities Commission, Chief Enforcement officer, I hasten to add, noting all the stripes on the sleeve. Doug is here to take your calls and to remind us all about the warning signs to watch for when it comes to investor fraud. I'm Sterling Fox, and you're listening to Vancouver Consumer right here on CKNW. Welcome back to the show this lovely, sunny Saturday afternoon. Not a whiff of snow anywhere in sight, and I hope to goodness we've seen the last of that white stuff. Sterling Fox in studio, joined by the Director of Enforcement for the BC Securities Commission. It's a pleasure to welcome Doug Muir to Vancouver Consumer. Hi, Doug. Hi, Sterling. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Let me just uh, read from your corporate website. The British Columbia Securities Commission is the independent provincial government agency responsible for regulating capital markets in British Columbia through the administration of the Securities Act. Our mission is to protect and promote the public interest. And it goes on to describe the various ways in which you do that. But you are, for all intents and purposes, the money cops in B.C., we are in a way, yeah, certainly. We're, we're uh, focused on securities and securities regulation, which is really broadly defined, and it impacts a lot of people's lives. A lot of people are invested in securities, and some don't even know that they are, but uh, that's what, certainly what, a, uh, what we do in enforcement in my division. We focus on enforcing the laws and prosecuting people and investigating matters. Mm-hmm. Does it distress you sometimes, Doug, to find out how few British Columbians are even aware of the fact that your department exists and we do have some teeth in terms of enforcement of securities? Rules? It, it concerns me, Sterling, because one thing that's essential for the enforcement division is we get information from the public. Exactly. So, so if they've been in, caught in a fraud or think that they have been caught in a fraud, if they can get us that information, we can do something with it. We can act quickly. We can stop a fraud. We may be able to freeze assets. 
But as you say, if they don't know we exist, then that can be a real problem. So we do all we can to try to get out there to know the, uh, to tell people that we're around and, and please contact us. And I think uh, and the newspapers are your best conduit in terms of getting the information because every time there's a bust, it's always a big deal, Doug, because there's always literally millions of dollars involved and regrettably sometimes hundreds if not thousands of British Columbians being bilked out of significant amounts of money. That's right, Sterling. Some of the cases can be quite large with millions or hundreds of millions of dollars involved. Um, but I can tell you, we're concerned about all cases, whether it's a dollar or a million dollars. Right. It's, it's something that worries us and that, you know, our team work hard at, at uh, tracking down every every form of misconduct when it relates to securities. How important is it to you to find out about a scam artist or a new act uh, going on as quickly as possible? It's essential. It's essential. I'd mentioned that, that we have powers, for example, to freeze money and we can freeze assets. And uh, one of the things that we can do is after we do an investigation and get some orders, if we've frozen assets, we can get that money back to the victims. Mm-hmm. But another thing too is uh, if you think about it, if you, if, you, uh, if we find out about a scam early on, then we can stop a $10,000 scam from becoming a $10 million scam. And that's why it's essential for me to have people report. And it's easy to do. You can go to our website. There's all sorts of ways they can do that. And you actually have two websites. You have your official Securities Commission website that I read that quote off, which is bcsc.bc.ca. That's a government website. You can tell. The other one, though, is something called investright.org. Now, you've had this website. This is basically a consumer website to keep people like uh, everyone listening to this broadcast up to speed on what you're up to at the commission. That's right. And it's uh, our investor education website. And investor education is a critical part of our mandate. We do a lot of work in that area. And the investright.org website's great for anyone. It's got all sorts of information. It's got tools, videos, calculators, and quizzes that you can take. All sorts of things you can do to educate yourself to try to prevent yourself from being a victim of securities fraud. Now, the quiz is an interesting. You had a quiz up for a good long period of time in which you invented. I can remember Pam McDonald's was with us a couple of weeks ago, but she was also with us a few months ago telling us about this quiz. And that's why you're here today, because the quiz has morphed into a survey, and you've just just got some brand new results. But this quiz, which was up on investright.org forever in a day, asked any visitor to answer a few simple questions. Basically, you wanted us, the visitor, to tell you what we thought were warning signs of fraudulent activity in the investment area. And so that became the basis of of the questions you asked in a very recent survey. So tell us how, connect those two dots for us. Well, you're right. So we, we've often told people about red flags and uh, that quiz is one way that people can test themselves on their knowledge of the red flags. But we've taken those out, the warning signs, and we've done a survey and we've got some recent results. It has some some interesting stuff that's come back as a result of, uh, of that survey. Well, let's talk about, first of all, let's talk about the warning signs mm-hmm. uh, because uh, then, then we can zoom in on what people did or did not recognize but uh, what are those warning signs uh, that, that are very common in the marketplace that most of us should go, wait a minute, this sounds too good to be true? So the most recognized one was guaranteed high returns with little or no risk. So that's a clear red flag, and a lot of, most people got that one, right. which, is, which is reassuring. 
Uh, and then next is moving money outside the country to avoid tax. Uh, people identified that as a red flag as well. Uh, third, a strong push to invest now, to mm-hmm. get in now. Limited Getting time people. offer. Limited time offer, right, exactly. Right, yeah. You've heard that so many times. Indeed. Uh, and then so another one is when the investment offers inside information or special information that's available only to a few people. Um, and uh, presented at least to you as a, it's almost an inconfidence. That's right. That there's just a tiny group of people, and you, for some mysterious reason, are now part of that elite group. That's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly how it comes across. Yeah, exactly. And, and then but fun- it's a flattering pitch, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of these things that you'll see here when you step back and think about them, it, it, it's a lot of them are working on just the individual psychology or the so- social psychology of the situation. Mm-hmm. As you say, if you think you've been made special or especially singled out, for this uh, investment, you'd be more inclined to invest in. The final one, though, is the one that, that the fewest people recognized was an investment that involves your friends and family or that they've invested or that that's used as a selling feature. And that one concerns me the most. How does that work? So what will happen? for instance. Sure, here, sure. So what will happen is um, someone in your network, friends, family, social network, cultural network, a religious group, They'll come to you with an investment or they'll just pass on information that they have an investment. It's been good for them and mm-hmm. you might want to look into it. And what we're, what we're seeing is that's a feature of a lot of frauds. And the concerning thing is that we think their people let their guard down. So if someone comes to you and you trust them, right. you may trust that the investment's right for you and you don't take your, the steps that you need to take. Right, because it's, after all, this is a person I've known for umpteen years. You know, we've had dinner together. We've gone uh, to the concerts together, et cetera, et cetera. Almost old pals. Why would somebody in within who's that close to me mm-hmm. has never expressed any malice ever suddenly want to hoodwink me? Right. And you make, a, you make a really good important point because there's investment frauds where these, uh, there's trust involved in a situation like you've described where the fraudsters, you know, the one you're associated with. But we see a lot of other cases where it's an innocent person who they don't, they're not the fraudster, but they've passed it on to you. And right. they may be doing it for a good reason. They may think, hey, I want my friend to get a part of this uh, good fortune that mm-hmm. I'm involved in. So it's a bit like a virus in that sense. You're passing it on, but you don't know that you actually have the virus yourself or that you've been involved in a fraudulent scheme. Because often how they'll work is you'll be getting returns and you'll be getting account statements. Mm-hmm. And you'll say, well, I should pass this on to people in my network because it'll be good for them as well. But you've just passed along a fraud. Right. You don't know that. And it sounds like a Ponzi scheme, doesn't it? If you're getting money to recruit new people and the more you recruit, the more money you get, and they're being asked to do precisely the same thing, isn't that essentially the dictionary definition of a Ponzi scheme? It's close. It's certainly close. And that is an aspect of what we see as well. If people are given some incentive, some commission or something like that to mm-hmm. bring other people in. Uh, and that's sort of the... Finders fees. There you those go. Those kinds of things, Finders right? Finders fees, yes. Yeah. That's the pyramid scheme aspect of things. You can have a Ponzi without a pyramid scheme. The Ponzi is where you bring money in and it's simply paid out to other people. Okay. But sometimes on top of that, you get a bonus, as you say, or a finder's fee to bring other people in. And that's where things can get really, really... Really challenging because you can't always see that one coming, and that's why it concerns me the most. The um, guaranteed return with no risk, that one's pretty easy to spot. Mm-hmm. But when someone you know in your network brings it to you, you may just let your guard down and don't do the research that you need to do before you invest. And, and of course, it's, it's again, you're talking about basic human psychology that's being applied by some of these scammers. They're not stupid. They're bad people, mm-hmm. but they're not stupid. And sometimes they're pretty darn clever. Uh, they have to be to be as 
criminally successful as they turn out to be. That's right. They may not even have to be part of your network, for example. They can just insert this fraud into the network. It spreads around through bad word-of-mouth advertising. They get to stay in the shadows where they like to be. And then everyone ends up losing when this whole thing falls apart. Okay, so we now know that the six warning signs, according to the BC Securities Commission, the most recognized and most frequent warning signs are guaranteed high returns with little or no risk, moving money outside the country to avoid tax, a strong push to act now, an offer of inside information, an offer only available to a select few, or being encouraged to invest because friends and family have already done so. Those are the six most common red flag warning signs. So you put this to British Columbians in the form of a survey question. How did we do? We did only okay. <laughs> oh. So the there was only 60% of the people could identify the warning sign where both friends and family were involved. 77% on the other end, which the guaranteed return with, with little with or no a, risk. Sure. Yeah, so not bad. We in some. In so did, did, did some people treat it as a trick question? Like the, one of these is actually legit and you, yeah. you have to find the right one. No prizes. But so it turns out, though, they're all equally warning signs. They are all equally warning signs. And so... Um, not everyone got all six. In fact, in some of the age groups, they, uh, they got only one, which is really concerning because uh, one alone can cause a fraud and cause you to be a victim of a fraud. So we did, uh, British Columbians did okay, okay compared to some of the national numbers. But on the whole, I think uh, we, the commission needs to do more to educate more people on these warning signs and keep getting the information out there. Based on what we see in the newspapers and on TV and such, uh, Doug, I'm thinking and I'm jumping to a rash conclusion, perhaps. But for that group of British Columbians who only got one of the six possible warning signs, would that be the seniors group, those always flagged by the media as being the mm. most vulnerable to fraud artists? You, you would be wrong. In fact, wow. they, <laughs> that's yeah, that was a, a bit of a surprise. In fact, it was the age group at the other end, the 18 to 34s, the millennials, that uh, failed to recognize many signs at all. The, um, the 55 and plus age group recognized the most. Is that right? Yes. Interesting. So still, I mean, there's, there's no exclusion of the fact that seniors are targeted by specifically nasty people and can be, if, if, if they spend the targeting time, can be really vulnerable. But as a group, it sounds like, you know, we've been maybe burnt a couple of times, so we're, we're a little uh, uh, skeptical. Yeah. about this stuff. I think I think that might be part of it. And I know certainly the commission has focused on that demographic for years to try to get the message out for them. So I think that's been successful so they can identify the warning signs. I think it also comes from experience. Sure. More experience investing. You've seen these scams before. Once bitten, twice shy. There you go. Yeah, pay, exactly. pay more attention to what's to what's happened and, and so they have more information about so that. So the group that actually got the least correct answers, the youngest participants in the economy, um, inexperience perhaps? I think that's a big part of it. I think they just haven't had as much investing history as the other groups have, and so haven't really turned their mind to it. It may not have been exposed to as many messages that we've been trying to convey to them, uh, and that could be part of what, why that group is, just can't identify these, uh, these risks. And uh, of that group, how many of the six warning signs did they actually identify correctly? Because you said one group only got one. Right. 
Yeah, well, of that 18 to 30, 34 group, 32% of them could identify only one. Of six. Of six. Wow. And 57% could only identify three out of six. So that, that's a bit concerning. Again, I don't know why, um, why that's, the numbers are like that, but it does cause us some concern about that age group being just not that aware. Well, and, and given the fact that you've, you've, you've done such a fine job in terms of educating seniors, clearly the next mission is to take the other age of the age sp- spectrum and go at that gang, right? We're certainly going to use the information in the survey to uh, help us inform what we're going to do in our next steps when it comes to educating the public, for sure. Our guest in studio is the Director of Enforcement from the British Columbia Securities Commission, Doug Muir is with us. Our phone lines are now officially open at 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. If you'd like to jump in on this conversation, we will open our lines during the news and catch up with you in just a few moments. And welcome back to the first hour of Vancouver Consumer for a Saturday afternoon. I'm Sterling Fox, joined in studio by Doug Muir. Mr. Muir is the Director of Enforcement with the BC Securities Commission, and he's here with a fresh batch of uh, research information. They've been conducting a survey. Actually, this this is a national survey, and what you're talking to us about is our portion of the national survey. How do we stack up against the rest of the country on average, Doug? On average, we stack up about the same. So the numbers are quite close. There's some differences in some of the categories here and there, but on the whole... Um, we're pretty much the same. Okay. Now, we talked about the six warning, most common warning signs of fraudulent investor activity. And we didn't do too well uh, in identifying all six, certainly. And some groups, uh, notably younger investors, did, more, did worse than others. What other questions did you ask on the survey besides these warning sign recognition things? We also asked about reporting fraud, because as I said before, that's quite important for us, because we can act on it if we get that information. Sure. We have lots of tools at our disposal. And some encouraging results that only 16% of the people thought it wasn't worth reporting the fraud. But again, if you break that down on some of the different age groups, the um, the millennial age groups, uh, about 27% of them thought that it would be worth, uh, would not be worth it to report. Hmm. The uh, 55 and plus, uh, they, most of them did think it was worth reporting. So I look at that from two different ways. Um, one, either they think it's too difficult to report, and we've talked about investright.org. There's all sorts of ways you can report to us. Sure. Phone, email, you can even mail us something if you want. There's an online complaint form. And then also maybe when you go back to the worth part of it, they may not fully appreciate what we can do. As I said before, we can stop a fraud if we know about it. We may be able to seize assets. So with that, that kind of money there, or with that kind of information there, people may, may change their views on this. Interesting. Is there a kind of a crime stoppers component to this? where you can sort of anonymously report activity that is negative without personally becoming involved, I would see it being a little more difficult than Crime Stoppers, or is it the same? It's similar. Not, okay. Yeah, not, not quite anonymously, but there's all sorts of ways that they can get the information to us, and then it gets rooted within the commission. A lot of it will come to my division, enforcement, and we can act on it. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's an inquiries line they can call. There's phone numbers, there's toll-free phone numbers, emails, and an co- online complaint form they can fill out as well. Here's an interesting finding as well. 12% of British Columbians said they have sunk money into fraudulent investment, with men being more than twice as likely as women to say they were indeed victims of investment fraud. Among those who said they were victims, a slim majority, 53%, said they lost less than five grand. But guys, twice as likely as women to take the leap. 
So I look at that number in a, a few different ways, but one of the things that we know about and regulators across Canada and around the world know about when it comes to fraud is that fraud is underreported. People don't re- report fraud uh, as much as I would like. And the one of the reasons I think behind that is a lot of embarrassment, a lot oh, of that's, shame. I was going to bring that up. Right. Is that yeah. a, a reason that a lot of people just, how stupid, stupid. could I have yeah. been? I, I can't believe how yeah. dumb I was. I'm not going to tell anybody about this. I'm going to go stand in the corner yeah. for a day. And, and you're exactly right, Sterling. And what I want to get out to people is you haven't lost your money because you're stupid or you're dumb. You've right. lost your money because these fraudsters, unfortunately, are good at what they do. You bet. And they've had a lot of practice. And so when you but see you're, the, that doesn't stop you from feeling like a total no, idiot, does of it? Of course not. Of course not. And you look at the other number you mentioned, which people may think, well, it's only $5,000. Why would I bother reporting if you balance that against the embarrassment I'm going to feel? Well, I want to know about everything. And, and any dollar lost in British Columbia because of a securities fraud really makes me mad. Mm-hmm. We've dedicated my career to, to stopping these kinds of stuff. So I want to hear about all of it. And people should not feel embarrassed at all. I mean, my uh, we have an excellent team of people who work in the commission, and they've seen lots of stories before. They've seen it all and certainly not going to judge or anything like that. But I understand. I understand why people are going to be embarrassed about what happened, particularly if it's happened as part of a network and the whole network's been infected by it. That's going to be some really difficult conversations and dealings with your colleagues in your network. Uh, well, there you go. And there's that's warning sign number six, eh? Right. Being encouraged to invest because friends and family have already done right. so. I just went along with the flow yeah. there, you know? And, and and you touched on a thing that, that people may not fully appreciate, but we've unfortunately seen too many times is there's the loss of money aspect of it as well. Yeah. But you've also lost a lot of trust. These frauds can break up families. Mm-hmm. They can break up friendships. And uh, certainly if you think about your friend who inadvertently may have got you into a fraud, you then have to continue to deal with that person and you've just lost a lot of money. That can be a really difficult time. It can cause a lot of stress for a lot of people, depression, anxiety, all sorts of things like that beyond the financial loss. Well, and true. And, and uh, some people are able to take a $5,000 hit uh, and just water off a duck's back. No biggie. And to other people, five grand can ruin you. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, it's it's not a, an innocuous sum of money. Right. It's a big, it's, it, it can be a big loss, and but people also have to keep in context that they may have lost $5,000, but 100 other people may have lost money as well. So the fraud is much bigger than just the $5,000. I think it bears, and I think it's important to understand that uh, people do, being humans and all, feel really dumb when we get hoodwinked. I mean, even the guy with the peas and the cups on the street who takes you for a buck. You, you, you go, why did I even do that? Uh, and, and at the same time, of course, if you've been led astray by a skillful scam artist, they are better at what they're up to than you are at detecting what they're up to. It's part of what they do. I think you're exactly right. Unfortunately, they've developed that skill set, and it's just something we have to combat and deal with, and that can make it um, difficult for people to, to understand, but I think it's a very, very important point. These people are good at what they do, which is bad for us. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask you, this is kind of a, a left-field type question, Doug, but it's a big story that everyone in Canada knows about because the guy in question is Canadian or was Canadian young man in his 30s goes on a vacation to India and dies. 
uh, on vacation uh, of some mysterious illness. We still don't know. Nonetheless, he is his enterprise is something called Quadriga, which is a, a, a cryptocurrency, Bitcoin-type outfit. So he goes on vacation and takes all of the passwords to his entire organization with him and ultimately to the grave. His wife, his associates have no access to what turns out to be 190 million Canadian dollars. Holy smokes, that's a biggie. Now, that's not fraud in the sense that the poor guy died, but there are a lot of people out, a lot of dough, Doug. Right. And so the important message about that, uh, I, th- I think my takeaway is that anytime people are going to be giving up money, um, they have to understand what's going to happen to it. They have to do their own research. They have to know if this investment's good for them. They, they want to know where the money's going to go, how their money's going to get back, what kind of protections that they have, where do they have, uh, what kind of returns are they going to get, how are they going to get them back, who's, who's kind of regulating this? Because that Quadriga one is, is concerning, but doesn't necessarily, it's not a, it's not a security. And oh, so, so it doesn't, it doesn't fall directly into your bailiwick. That's, that's correct. Yeah. Not, not everything that, that uh, you may think is a security is a security. And so you have to be careful and you have to understand that before you, again, before you part with your money, you should know uh, who's behind it, who's regulating it, if anyone is, and if anyone's not regulating it, there's all sorts of risks that can be behind it. And the whole uh, cryptocurrency thing is a kind of counterculture in in the finance world. Anyway, it's it's almost, I'm looking at the list of the six warning signs, and there's insider information, a strong push to act now. I mean, literally, when you're talking Bitcoins and all of that whole area of the economy, uh, it, it's sort of in a gray, dark corner. Mm-hmm. And essentially, you could apply all six at one one point or another to the whole thing. I, I think you're right. And I think these warning signs are certainly not exclusive to uh, security scams. They would apply to all sorts of frauds. Okay, so where then do we best go to educate ourselves? I know you have a terrific website, mm-hmm. investright.org. Is that the, a recommended jumping off point? That's what I'd recommend. It's definitely a jumping off point. Lots of information, as we talked about, and you, you've taken yourself the quiz. Well, I have. I took it last year, and, and I didn't do it. Well, I got four out of six. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, because I thought it was a trick question. There you go. I thought there was one right answer, and, and, and so I, I blew it. Right. <laughs> That's okay. Sometimes people make mistakes. Oh, right? sure. Absolutely. It didn't cost me anything, <laughs> Doug, so that was, it was painless. <laughs> and, and so there, there's that, that, certainly that website to go to inform yourself, but it also is a lot of sort of self-reflection. You have to understand yourself, what your investment goals are, what your risk tolerance is. And you have to keep in mind too, that there's registered advisors out there. Right. People can go and speak to them and they're going to, they have to know you. They have to know your financial situation. They have to talk to you about risk. They have to talk to you about fees. They have to make suitable recommendations. They have to know their products. And you can check on them before you decide to work with them. You can check to see if they're registered or not, if there's been any discipline history or anything like that. But that's another great place for people to go to who are just not comfortable investing on their own. Interesting. And of course, the financial advisor with all of those qualifications and all the rest of it, uh, generally very legitimate people who are looking to help you out. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a whole new level at play these days, and it's been impossible for a guy in your business to avoid. It's these very aggressive new online investing outfits, Quest Trade, and, and the list goes on and on. Now, there are no, you can't go and sit down and across the desk from a human being and look him or her straight in the eye and say, here are my financial goals, and here's, here's my income, and here's how I'd like, so how do we get to where I want to go based on what I'm making now? You can do that online, 
but there's it's a different there's no human contact involved and it's, it's, it's a good point so if people when you decide how you're going to invest and who's going to help you with that or if no one is going to help you with that you have to understand what you're giving up right what you're not what protections you're no longer getting and why and how that impacts you for some people that'll be fine some people who are survey shows who are do-it-yourself investors sure. they are much better able to identify these signs of fraud they may have done their homework and they may have a better broader knowledge of securities investment but if you need that, if you need someone there to be support to support you and give you the knowledge that you don't have, then maybe do it yourself is not the way to go for sure. You. Sure. And what percentage can you break it out for us? What percentage of investors are the DIY do it yourself types versus those of us who yeah. prefer to sit down opposite a human being? And I don't I don't have those numbers with me. And our survey does talk about some of the breakdown or who um, the people who replied whether they use an advisor or not. Right. Some of them do, but many don't. Interesting. Yeah. So we're out there. A lot of us just winging it. Quite possibly, or not investing at all. Ah, do we know? Is there a certain percentage of the Canadian population that is reluctant at even on the best of days and flush with cash to play the game? I'm sure there's people out there. I don't have those numbers with me. And our survey does talk about some of the people that simply didn't invest at all. Um, but there may be lots of reasons why they, they may not have the money to invest. Right. They may not know what to do with it. They may be nervous or scared and they may not have the knowledge that they need to. So investright.org is a good place for those people to go to as well. And investright.org is a great place to, again, if you're just at the point in your life, if you're a young player in the game looking perhaps for a little guidance uh, and uh, how to recognize more of those warning signs more frequently, uh, then uh, again, it's so who do I who do I go to? How do I find a financial advisor that I can trust, that I can get along with? And I'm new to the game and I'm new to town. So who do I go to? Yeah, and you're right. It's all there. They've got the really base information about what an advisor does and what they need to know and what all the designations are and what it means to be registered and all sorts of information about all kinds of different investments. So it's a great jumping off point for anyone. Uh, when you, and because when you do, you and your team of the enforcement uh, division of BC Securities, when you do make an arrest and uh, challenge someone in court and someone is convicted and there are penalties, that hits the papers every time. Again, because we're talking minimum seven figures and sometimes much larger, Doug. So uh, how frequently do you bust people? We, uh, fairly frequently. So there's a bunch of different routes for us. Uh, so our team, we have two separate teams, really. We have a criminal investigation team and also an administrative investigation team. So the administrative investigation team, uh, we do investigate matters and then we have hearings in front of the commission and they can order fines, penalties and... And, pr- and people to stop trading their, and all of that, right? Things like that, right? Okay. But they can't send them to jail. That's the criminal team, the criminal side, and those cases go to the criminal courts. Ah. Both teams have been very successful over the years. Criminal team has uh, about four convictions a year in the last 10 years. All of that's on our website if people want to find out information about that. The administrative team, some of the times those cases can be quite larger, but uh, very successful as well. And all of those decisions are on our on our uh, website as well. In, in addition to the sanctions and how much people have been sanctioned and any news releases about what's going on in, in that area as well. The other thing that we do, though, we may not always have to go to a hearing and get sanctions to be effective to protect the public. We may disrupt some conduct and goes back to my point about telling us about it. If you can tell us about it, we may be able to stop it, maybe able to stop it soon. Mm. And you, of course, are the, uh, the chief of both the administrative and the criminal divisions. I am. Uh, final question to you. I, I'm amazed at how quickly this conversation has gone by. Uh, Doug, how many people, what's the percentage of people actually get some of their money back? Very low. Very it is, low. Huh? It's very low. Most of the time when we find out about a scam, the money's gone. 
fraudsters don't take the money and put it under their mattress. <laughs> right. They spend it. Spend it on personal things or they just blow it in some other way. So that's another good reason why people have to be very, very careful before they part with their money because you may never get it back again. Okay, so any any suspicion in Europe, you see any of these red flags going up along your journey, the place to go is investright, one word, investright.org. That's the BC Security Commission website that's very user-friendly and not too technically jargony. That's the other one. Uh, and uh, all of the information on how to report your suspicion, or worse still, the ripoff, it's right there at investright.org. Doug, thanks for coming by. It's uh, it's good to know you're out there on duty, and, and you and your team, and keep up the good work. Great. Thanks for having me. Doug Muir is the Director of Enforcement with the BC Securities Commission, and we're back after this. And once again, our thanks to Doug Muir, Director of Enforcement from the BC Securities Commission, for a very interesting visit. John Carlson is on deck and will join us next hour with a fresh Vancouver real estate numbers and more on the 1% Realty Story. That's coming up after the news. Time now, though, for Dooley Noted. And this time around, our producer, Ben Dooley, has a look at a possible end to changing those clocks. Thanks, Sterling. BC Premier John Horgan has sent a letter to governors in the states of Washington, Oregon, and California asking to be kept in the loop on no longer changing the clocks twice a year. The jurisdictions are looking at ways to stay on either daylight saving time or Pacific Standard Time year-round. We can act in unison, the four jurisdictions, make the case that we need to either stay with daylight saving time or stay with Pacific Standard Time and then do it together. Support has been growing in California, Oregon, Washington and B.C. to leave the clocks alone. Horgan's letter comes as a majority of British Columbians prepare to move the clocks forward on Sunday morning. Horgan says there are too many economic and social ties that prevent B.C. from going ahead with the switch without the other coastal jurisdictions. B.C. Liberal MLA Linda Larson has introduced a private member's bill that would establish a new time zone for the coast, Pacific Daylight Standard Time Zone. I hope, personally, that when we move our clocks forward this weekend, that we never have to turn them back. I'm Ben Dooley. And that's duly noted. Well, thank you, Ben, very much. Time for a couple more consumer quickies before the news. In a change announced this week, police will no longer have to go to collisions where there are no injuries if the damage is estimated at less than $10,000. Up until now, officers had to write reports for damage exceeding $1,000 for cars, $600 for motorcycles, and $100 for bicycles. The public safety minister, Mike Farnworth, said it's all about speeding up the removal of damage cars, especially at peak traffic times, and he adds it's seriously overdue. Obviously, investigators still have to file reports with ICBC for every crash that's fatal or involves someone getting hurt, but this move allows for some discretion on the part of officers, especially if there's a suspicion of impairment or who's at fault. The BC Police Chiefs Association President Neil Dubord of Delta likes the change for two reasons. First, the ability to clear those crash scenes faster, and and secondly, it lowers the risk for everyone at the accident scene. The government believes this change will save time for both police officers and ICBC. Oh, and if you've noticed some unusual banners and signs around the Vancouver Art Gallery this week, 
It's because Batwoman is in town. For the next few weeks, Vancouver becomes Gotham, as film crews are expected to be here until at least the 25th of this month as they shoot the pilot episode of Batwoman, starring Ruby Rose, best known for her role in Orange is the New Black, along with movies like Pitch Perfect 3 and The Meg. So while you're trolling around downtown Vancouver, keep an eye out there around the art gallery area. You might just see Batwoman herself. Film shoots are fascinating and the amazing part about it is the number of people involved they make work for a lot of local people and that is vancouver consumer for this hour produced by ben dooley with andrew ferreira at the controls we'll take a break for the news and we'll be right back with a fresh vancouver market real estate update from johnny one percent john carlson is coming right up on vancouver consumer right here on CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.